This morning is fairly simple in some ways, but also I think so essential. We're going to be focusing on the gospel and how the gospel relates to church life. So I'm glad that you guys are all here. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll look at page three on our notes. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being our God. Thank you for redeeming us through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your church. Thank you for her um, increasing Christ-likeness. Thank you for the ministry of the word by which the Holy Spirit gives us life. We thank you for the graces of faith and repentance that bring us to embrace the gospel of truth. We ask that you would strengthen our church family, that we would understand the gospel in its richness better, that we would find in it patterns for us to pursue Christ-likeness, and that our church would treasure the transforming message that is able to save men from their sins. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So looking through church life and talking about church life together in a broad way, I want to start with just this thought that um, the, the basics is actually a really good place to start with most things. When I have complex decisions, when I have challenges in ministry, when I think through home life even, I think it's a really good thing to start not only with, with like simple, but start with foundational. Like kind of like, what is our big goal here? Like where are we going with this thing? What, what is the, the point of it all? If you do that, it'll tend to keep you on track. I find a lot of times in complexity, I get lost, and I can often kind of like veer off of what is clear and true, and so simplifying it down really helps. So we're going to start with this. What is the gospel? In fact, I think if we look at this chapter in its entirety, we would recognize the gospel is so central to the Christian expression of faith. That if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. And this, the word gospel means what? Good news. I think the most clear explanation I've ever read is probably from a theological dictionary where it mentioned that this is often a term a secular person would use to refer to the report back from the battlefront that, that there's been a victory won and the enemy's been defeated. Um, that he would come back with good news. And so you kind of get that image a little bit in Romans 10. I think that's a reference from the Old Testament where... How beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. That is, that messenger running is, is like a cool, refreshing drink on a dry desert day. Um, it, it's just good news. Okay, so what is the gospel? Uh, Tyndale says the, the evangelion or the euangelion, if you're thinking more Greek, is what we call gospel. It's a word that signifies good, merry, glad, or joyful news. And it makes man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Well, the problem with that concept, just as Tyndale says it is, is actually not defining anything. It's just kind of telling us about it. I don't know if that makes sense, but you, you have no idea of the content of the good news by the phrase good news. You just know that it's well-received. It's happy news for the person that receives it. So let me ask you, before you go through the notes, and please don't cheat and look ahead, what is the gospel? If you had to give me the whole entire gospel in 60 seconds... And at that time, I hit the mute button on your microphone and you went silent. What is the gospel? Some of you guys are slow talkers. You're like, man, I, I wouldn't even have started. Give me just a second. I want you guys to all think before I call on anyone. What is the gospel? In 60 seconds. I always get a kick out of the fact that when I ask this, the first thoughts are generally not great. 
And then as people start pondering it, they get better and better until like I think really solid thoughts are coming out after like a minute or two. But the first thoughts are often very, very, um, maybe I could say personally centered. They're, they're about the benefits we get. Guess you guys with me on gospel? You guys all have a definite, if I said write it down, could you write something down? Okay, so I'm sure you all have superior definitions to the one in our, or the ones, plural, in our workbook. Um, generally, these are found in Greer's book on the gospel. He quotes them as bad ones, so he's, he's a fan of better illustrations than this. Listen to this first one. The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? Now, and the, the, the author starts by saying the good news is, and then says that, which is, this is a wretched definition by anyone's standard, because it's actually not hardly a definition at all. It's really a call, like, to embrace this larger vision. What is wrong with this definition, though? <laughs> like, didn't talk about the Savior at all. That's a problem. Anything else missing from this definition? Sin is not mentioned. God's character is not mentioned. Yeah, there, there's no means of redemption. The, the cross work of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, none of this is mentioned. Anyone else? Even the call to response is to do what? Be willing to get rid of your old life, embrace a bigger vision that God has for you. Really, yeah, yeah, that may be the author. I don't know if it is. Um, they're cited in his book. I didn't cite them in these notes. Next, next one, the good news is that God's face will always be turned toward you. I, I just want to stop. Like, okay, that's kind of an Old Testament theme. But where does that come from? Like, whose face is God's, like, like, who is God's face toward? Right, right. Those who are walking with him in righteousness. So the, the idea that this broad statement just says God is smiling on you really has a theological problem with hell. Right? Because if God's smiling on everyone, then what happens? Like, how, how does hell coexist with that theological claim? Okay, so let's keep going. Um, God's face will always be turned toward you regardless of what you've done, where you have been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction looking for you. Okay, what's wrong with that? Like, you need to advance further because there's some similar things that were wrong with our previous definition. What's wrong with this one, though? Okay? We're... we're in some ways, God is almost pictured as this needy God. Yeah, like, like this is your, your single person who feels like their best years are passing them by and is desperately looking for a spouse, hoping they get married before old age sets in. Like that, is, that is not a self-satisfied, self-sufficient, all-happy God. Right? It's a needy God. Anything else? God is pictured as the helpless Savior. 
right? He's just hoping we pick him, like the sad kid playing kickball who gets picked last. It's a really pathetic view of God, isn't it? What else is, like, glaringly missing that we haven't touched on yet? What? There's no call to faith or repentance. There's no call to turn from your wicked ways and trust in God. It's merely just let God choose you. Ouchie. Okay, next one. The message of Jesus may be well called the most revolutionary of all time. Like, I want to see this, like, like I want to say this like a radio announcer's voice. Like, just feel it, right? The radical revolutionary empire of God is here. Advancing by reconciliation and peace, expanding by faith, hope, and love, beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least. It's time to change your thinking. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. Believe me. Follow me. Believe this good news so you can learn to live by it and be part of the revolution. I just need a, like, a radio announcer's voice to get that all done right, don't I? What's wrong with that? It's just a whole lot. It's, it's word soup a little bit. I mean, it sounds really cool, but then you're like, well, okay, what is it actually, like, pull it apart. Yeah. I like soup better. It's just like one messy. But you're right, it's word salad. What else is there going on here? Or lack of it? Okay. Right, there, there is no message of Jesus Christ's work, his life, death, and resurrection, our need for righteousness. There are, I mean, I, I think there's, this is more, I have a more favorable response to this, despite it's kind of like, ugh, you know, presentation, in that there's actually a call to a different way of life kind of embedded in this claim, right? Follow me, be part of something that's entirely different than you were previously. These are consistent with the gospel, aren't they? Um. At the same time, it does feel like an overworked sales pitch. Right. Yeah. Perhaps. I, I mean, I, I would want to be generous with them like I want people to be generous with me. But I, I think the self-help type of thing where it's just all you changing could be a concern that we'd have with this definition, for sure. Yeah. Well, that, that's where I'm, like, it feels like a smarmy sales pitch. Right? Like, this is what everyone says at 2 o'clock in the morning on cable TV as they're trying to sell you their new Ginsu knife or whatever it is, or the food chopper. This will this will change your life. It's really a kitchen knife. It's going to change my life. Okay, <laughs> this feels over. Okay, this next one here is the last one we'll go through in terms of bad definitions. My understanding of Jesus' message is that he teaches us to live by the reality of God now, here and today. It is almost as if Jesus just keeps saying, "Change your life. Live this way." What's wrong with that? Aside from like everything, but be particular. Okay. Okay, it's just about changing. Like, put on a new you. Yes? 
okay? It's almost as if Jesus just keeps saying, change your life, live this way. He is kind of saying, yeah, like, die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me, are actual things he says, not just things he might be saying. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. I, I guess the first line just drives me nutty. Were you going to say that, Ricky? Yeah, yeah I got to tell you the truth. I have no idea what he means by that phrase. What does it mean to live in the reality of God now? I want you guys to do that this week. Live in the reality of God now. Do you have any idea what you're supposed to do with that? Like, I, I don't. Like, it, it's a nothing muffin, right? Like, it sounds good. It's, it's just there's nothing to it. It's, it's, it's baseless content that fills pages in a book and makes people feel like, you know, there's some theological truth here, but there's, there's actually not. It's, it's a, a nothing. Um, let me ask you, if you were to visit churches pastored by the theology of these claims, what do you think the church would look like? <laughs> a very busy church? Keep describing the church, and then, like, if you want to be good with this, cite where you're seeing that type of idea in these, in these texts. Okay, maybe not theologically like clear in how the, the church is teaching and communicating? That could be a problem. Colin, what'd you have? Okay. So so because there's a lack of definition on sin in the gospel, you would assume that the church struggles with a clear mission of calling people away from it. Okay. Okay, well, I agree with you. Again, we're trying to cite the, 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 where you're kind of sensing that from. Okay. Okay. I actually think that's one of the, like, my big takeaways of this is the center of these calls to the gospel is whom? It's about what you want. It's about a better experience, a better life, my guess is then you'd see things like this. You would see addiction classes. You'd see marriage improvement classes. And th these things aren't inherently bad, right? Like, I, I don't want people addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever else. I would love them freed from those vices. But, but those are things that are wrecking lives. And so the, the hope of this type of church, the way I'm seeing their, their framing of the gospel, would be we want lives to be improved. Is that the gospel? Is the gospel improving your life and breaking addictions? No, that's not the gospel. I would say that's a fruit of it. So they're chasing a fruit of the gospel, not the actual gospel that produces the fruit. And, and that would lead towards a moralism then. Like better people doing better things more often is, is improving. But, I mean, like, 
Is anyone else concerned? Maybe I'm wrong, but is the word grace ever mentioned? I mean, even repentance is hinted at subtly, but the work of Christ isn't mentioned. Uh, This type of church, I think, has a, a really hard time then not only declaring the true gospel, but having its philosophy of ministry, of gospel-centered ministry, leak into real, robust, good, I would say doxological ministry. Okay, so that's a big word. What does doxological mean? Can you start using words like that more often then, right? Okay, doxology is, anyone? No, doxology refers to the glory of God like the study of God's glory. So what doxological would be like, where we're talking about God's glory. So like the doxology is praising God from whom all blessings flow. Okay, it, it's, a, it's a word of praise and glory. Okay, so when we talk about like the gospel, the center of the gospel is whom? Who won the victory? Right, God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. So when we think of church ministry and the gospel ministry, what, what the center... The hero of the story is, is the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of God the Father to save through him. That's the center of the gospel. We are, we are helpless and hostile to do anything about this, right? Like, like it is not as though we are the even, to use military metaphor or maybe princess metaphor, we're not the princess who's being rescued by Jesus Christ even. We are the enemy forces. Right? Like that's, that's, the gospel is not a call to let Jesus save you. It's a call, a call to lay down your arms, stop fighting against God, and surrender and join him, turning a whole 180 degrees direction in terms of life, loyalties, and loves. Okay, so here's some, I think, better ones. I, Ray Orland's, it, we've had in a while. I, I changed it over the last uh, membership book to um, Mark Devers, but I included them both in, in the, the notes this morning. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with a promise of full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. What's wrong, what's right? Anyone? Yeah, there's no clear explanation of um, response. Right? So, so I think this is good on God, sin, Jesus, and then doesn't kind of finish that kind of fourth component of response. All right? Anything else? Any other thoughts? Well, I guess, I guess at the least in this, there's no identification of who his people are. So his people, to me, are the believers, the ones who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would like to see that as part of the gospel. I, I don't know that I would exclude it. But I do think we need to be careful that we don't think that just calling people to respond is actually giving the gospel. The gospel is the, 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 the good news, not merely just the response. So a lot of times people talk about like a gospel-centered sermon or lesson or, or like a vacation Bible study uh, school, and, and they'll, be, they'll be saying something like, we need to call these children to repentance, or there needs to be a gospel call at the end of the service. What they merely mean is someone needs to challenge people to repent and believe. I, I think that's a little bit 
simplistic. I think embedded in any sermon is that if this is who our glorious God is, the presumption is everyone should acknowledge that and agree. You don't have to, you shouldn't have to make that so explicit, right? If I tell you that God is glorious and, and that his work through Jesus Christ saves all people who trust in him, the implication is you should do what? Trust in him. But it, people will be like, man, there really needs to be a gospel hook at the end where you call people to respond. And I'm like, man, that, that kind of artificial paint-by-numbers presentation of preaching is, is I, I don't think what anyone should be meaning when they talk about gospel-centered preaching. Um, so I, I, think, I think Ray is pretty good on that except for response. I, I think we could amplify it a little bit. I mean, that's like a 15-second definition. I said you get 60. That's where I think Devers comes in. I think that's actually how he frames it. As someone challenged him to say the whole gospel in 60 seconds. And I'm sure he worked and crafted this for a while. So here's his definition. I find it fairly full and helpful. This might be the type of thing you read through 20, 30 times over the next month, and it helps you. Because then as you listen to people, it gives you some hooks to, to hang conversations on, like, oh, they don't get their sin. Or they don't understand their accountability to God. Or something like that. It gives you some... Some kind of like, okay, I want to think through how to talk about the gospel, and these are, these are high points I want to hit. The good news is that the one and only God, who is holy, made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life in an eternal life with God. Like, don't you sense that's so much more robust? Like, I, when I read that, and I, my mind at least does not immediately think, oh, he missed something. I, I read that, and I'm like, okay, I can't think of anything that I would add in, in, in the essence of what the gospel is. Okay, so when we look at what the gospel is, most of us, it's probably like a lot of things. Um, I mean, they, the kind of philosophical, um, you know, does a fish know it's wet? Um, Christians living in the gospel sometimes forget how to describe it, and they're so accustomed to just swimming in gospel waters, that when someone's like, what makes that so sweet? What, what is so precious about the gospel? Our first thoughts are often not saying it well or not structuring it in such a way that you're helping people to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Having said all of that, I'm talking to a refined, wise, mature group of people. So I'm sure all of you were right with me that whole time and Mark Dever has nothing on you. But um, I think for a church life, at least it's helpful for us to walk through the next section and just kind of strengthen our understanding of these things and thoughtfulness about them. Okay, so if we think about the gospel this way, I think this is helpful in kind of four components, God, sin, Jesus, and our response. I think if we think through it in those four ways, that, that's helpful. And again, in gospel conversations, I don't, it's kind of like a home run to hit all four. Home runs aren't really common. If you try to build your baseball team on home runs, you're going to lose. Like, you're not going to make the playoffs. You're not going to do great. You know, so, so a good coach says, you know, just base hits, wins games. I, I think sometimes 
we, we've been raised in an evangelistic culture in terms of Christianity, especially since like the uh, the era of like the Second Great Awakening, and then even the the kind of gospel preaching era of like 1870s through like 1920s, and it's leaked into the churches, so that now you feel like every sermon needs to have this gospel call at the end, the hook where someone gets saved, maybe even an altar call where you call people to make decisions. I think that type of philosophy is misguided in multiple different ways. But if I think through the gospel in those four components, I think almost any sermon, almost any conversation can hit on one of those really easily. I think if it's an, uh, an artificial conversation where you stir it up, maybe you can get to all four, or where they ask you, like, hey, I, I want to know how I can get saved. You know, so some of us are, have an evangelistic heart, and when we're given the opportunity, we're going to try to make sure we get to all four. And I think we should, but I think oftentimes in... I'd say in the workplace, you know, someone's complaining about why someone else is always doing bad. Man, I think you have a really clear opportunity to go to point number two of, like, sin. I'm talking about sin nature and the sinfulness of all of us. Um, and, and then, you know, when they're talking about their kids and their hope for their kids, and their kids are a mess. You know, maybe you can hit point three or four, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ or, or what really needs to happen in the human heart to respond to the gospel. And so, like, I would encourage you all to think through these components. They, they blend together as kind of like a, a woven message, but we can definitely extrapolate each string and talk about them individually and do a good job with gospel communication. So, I, does that make sense to you all? Okay. I'm saying the expectation that a sermon to be a gospel-centered sermon always needs to hit all four clearly has a flawed view of sanctification and preaching. I mean, let, let's think through like in school terms. Do you think that um, in order to teach math well, I have to teach addition, multiplication, subtraction, and long division in the same class period? Or do we build on concepts and, and thereby grow that person? Does that make sense? So I, I think this artificial view that somehow I need to give it all, all the time, has a really um, upside-down view of theology and preaching. I mean, like, Paul doesn't. Right? So if I'm going to preach on forgiveness, I'm not necessarily going to go all the way back to God created you to be reconciled with him and have a, a sweet relationship with him forever, but you have sinned and, and walked through the whole gospel. But I might strongly hit forgiveness is anchored to the, the payment of sin being on someone else, Jesus. And this is the essence of what the gospel um, rescue of Jesus Christ has done. He paid for your sin. So when God calls you to forgive, he's calling you to hurt in order to offer someone else forgiveness and to not make them pay for their sin. This is the gospel. Christ paid for your sin believe it, and live it in forgiveness to others. And in so doing, I think I've really clearly helped them understand gospel forgiveness through Christ so they'll live it out. But I don't, I don't know that it's helpful in a sermon to have to like rewind, go all the way back to Garden of Eden, work all the way down to heaven in Revelation 22, and then come over here and say, so you need to forgive. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah.
Well, I mean, I think you're asking and answering your own question when you say, if you don't give the full gospel, is it the full gospel? Which is, I'm like, if I just kind of reduce your questions, I think that's what you've asked. I, I think if, if I'm going to answer that in a, in a real simple way, I would suggest to you that there are messages in which you give the gospel simply and fully. I, I need to say simply because we never really clearly communicate the whole gospel in any single sermon. I mean, there's, the gospel is so rich and has so many textures to it that to say in a 40-minute sermon you've handled it well feels a little audacious. I think, I think what I would suggest as a church philosophy we would recognize is that if God is moving people providentially and sovereignly to bring them under the sound of the gospel and to save them, that I don't feel the need to hit home runs every sermon. Okay, so I'm not saying I artificially sh shut it short. Like, if I'm preaching a gospel sermon, I'll try to give it in a full sense, like probably all four components. But my suggestion to, to you all is that the scriptures don't do that. The examples of scripture sermons don't do that. And very rarely do you see this full explanation of the gospel anywhere. I think, I think the idea that I need to give a full gospel explanation puts too much in any given moment and doesn't actually trust God to, to save people but puts it on the preacher or the evangelist. Does that make sense? So, so my hope isn't that um, those who are, are saved people or know the gospel well will get, let's say you gave like four components, two and three and one and four like that. My, my thought is, is that my goal is to treat the text well and maybe help them see those gospel connections well. And so if, if gospel connection number two is shown, I'm going to help them see it. And maybe what I'll say is say, hey, there's a lot more that could be said about the gospel. If you have questions, could you pursue after, answers afterwards with one of our pastors? That, like that's pastorally how I would do it. Because I don't think on every, on every sermon I want to pull apart the gospel. Partly, again, I don't think the example of Scripture says that. But here's the other thought. If God is saving this person, what's God going to do? Well, he's going to save them through the gospel, and, and that means that I have to trust God to bring them back to hear it again. I've got, I mean, with your children or with any neighbor, how many people truly get saved the very first time they hear the gospel? I think it's a very minor amount. And so there's a sense in which, I'm going to use Erica as an example. The first time she's in church, I'm like, oh, there's this you know, sweet young lady that needs to hear the gospel. So I, I make sure she gets the full dose all four points. I think that assumes that I better take this chance or she won't get saved. Rather, I think I should say is I need to make sure I do this well so that God is honored and God will be the one who brings her back or brings someone else along to save her. But I don't need to, I don't feel the need, if I'm going to use a baseball metaphor, to win the game every at bat. I, I think that's what I'm trying to say is actually I think the breadth of the church, the ministry of the church, the re repetition of pastoral work and Christian work means I don't need to think like that. I think that's kind of that, I can say it this way, I'm, un I'm, I'm unraveling a definition I think you have on y yourselves that I think is unhealthy. So I know I'm fighting an uphill battle even in this room that there is a sense in which we want people to be saved, and that's a righteous want. And so the application, and I think this is the incorrect application, is therefore I need to give them all the tools to be saved every time I have opportunity. I think that is, is not good preaching. 
generally. Does that make sense? Okay, so in, in an evangelical culture, which is what we live in, that feels like I'm not loving people or not doing good gospel sermons. Okay, I've raised more questions. So that's why we do these membership classes, because we really want to do it well. And again, my point is, is good gospel-centered preaching does not necessarily have that burden to give the whole gospel every time in this artificial patch-it-on-the-sermon sense. Okay. Yeah, and, and just a, a commitment to trust God. Like, I, I am not the agent that saves. The Holy Spirit is. I am not the Savior. The Savior is. I am merely a vessel by whom he speaks. And so I need to be really careful not to take a burden that's a righteous burden that we all have, that people get saved and own it in that way. Teresa, did you have a question? Well, you're going to a probably less than two or three type of point, but yeah, that is also a good point to bring up. That the goal of Sunday morning is actually not to gather unbelievers and preach the gospel to them. It is to gather the believers and strengthen them in Christ-likeness. And so, again, if there's an unbeliever among us, we don't want them to not hear about how sweet our Savior is or his great work of redemption. We want them to hear that. So I think 1 Corinthians 14 is it verse 22 where he says, if there's an unbeliever among you? you know, so the implication is that even in the church in Corinth, there might be unbelievers who attend their gatherings. And so we don't want to be unaware. But again, the gospel, the evangelical modern church has, has tried to make the gospel such a, um, it's almost, this is going to be a bad analogy probably, like many of mine. It's like the Thin Mints that some restaurants give when they hand you your receipt or like a fortune cookie at the end. It's kind of like, hey, you've had a great meal with us. Here you go. We don't want you to leave without this Thin Mint. And it's like, okay, yay. And I think, I think that's, that, that's really a disservice to the gospel sometimes. And it makes the gospel something that's very palatable and simple and easy. And we wonder why often the testimonies in our church are, I thought I was a believer. Like, how many testimonies start out that way? Or when I was eight, I made a profession of faith, and then. And so, I, I think we should have a commitment to preaching texts and helping people see gospel connections and letting the text speak, and then trust God's word. And that's one of the reasons, like, this morning, I have the joy of preaching to you about giving. It's one of the most uncomfortable sermons I get to have. You know, it's like, they're hard sermons because the texts are hard, but when you preach through books, then the scriptures, emphasis, Gets, gets the right representation. I mean, if I preached on my, my fun passages, you guys would get certain theologies, and we'd be super strong maybe than the theologies that Mark likes. But really weak in the areas. And here's the danger. I might not know I'm weak in those areas. I mean, because ignorance is blinding to its own self. Right? We don't know what we don't know. 
And so we have a church that's very confident in what it knows and doesn't know how dumb they are because they're dumb about what they don't know. That's, that's super. So when we preach through books like the, the book to the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, there's gospel passages, there's Christ-centered passages, there's passages there that speak about the death of Christ, there's passages that speak about the gospel of Christ. And I think in that chorus, the church is built and you become, you become better evangelists. That then the sermon isn't just Sunday morning. The sermon and the gospel goes out throughout the week too. All right, we've gotten bogged down. So let, let, me, let me clip through the, the rest of this fairly quickly. Um, because God created thing, uh, all things, God owns all things. You should put Psalm 24, 1 there. Psalm 24, 1 um, says that the world and all that fills it is God's. It's one of the most clear statements that God doesn't merely just um, reign as king. He reigns as king because he's owner and creator. Um, And that's helpful because most people don't think they are accountable to God or uh, wonder why they should worry about God. So the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness or the things that fill it. The world and those who dwell therein. God doesn't just, he doesn't merely own the trees, he owns the people. That's a helpful verse to add to that. This God who created us and owns us is holy. Perfect would also be an excellent word to put in there. Um, Holy and requires that his people be holy. Even though I put Matthew 5, 48 in there, which is what threw Paxton off, he was looking at the scripture and saying that, that makes sense. You could also put 1 Peter 1, 17. Is that right? Um, sometimes I'm a little sketchy on my memory of where things are placed in the Bible. Sin. Our biggest problem is that man has sinned against God. Um, I have here um, Isaiah 59.2. I, I find it a really helpful explanation about sin. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. I think we often think of sin as somehow causing God to separate himself from us. This passage pictures our sins as building a barrier between us and God. It lays accountability at our feet. Our sins have built a separation between us and God. The bad news, which is necessary to know in order to appreciate the good news, is that our sins deserve eternal punishment. Christ is the solution. The good news is that though we have sinned against God, in his great love, God made a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to him forever. God chose his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a compelling verse, isn't it? While sinners. In dying for sinners, Christ took upon himself the wrath of God that sinners deserve and in exchange offers his very own righteousness for those same sinners. Page five, for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the third day after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, declaring that everything Jesus claimed about himself is true. Christ validates all of his claims in his resurrection. 
that he's the sinless lamb of, lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is clear in his resurrection. The Bible commands all people to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, which leads us to the response then. Um, repentance is to turn from our rebellious sin. And I might just add that it is the mindset of turning, just to be clear. I want to make sure that we do, what we don't say is turning from sin is a prerequisite. Pre, pre, sound like Bugs Bunny. Prerequisite of saving faith. That is, uh, if, if, if we make repentance the turning of, then what we might be saying is, I need to stop doing sin in order to get saved. That is not what we're saying at all. Please do not hear me to say that. What we should be saying is, repentance is the, the mindset by which we are turning. Um, even the phrase metanoia in Greek, the, the word, is, is the idea of mental repentance. Faith while repenting is turning from sin, faith is turning to Christ. It is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Okay. Wrapping things up here then. The role of the gospel in the church. The gospel, fill in the blank. Who's got it? The gospel does what to us? It saves us. There is no eternal benefit to knowing the gospel if you don't believe it. Okay, intellectual agreement is not the same as trust and because it's the message that saves those who believe it, immediately begin proclaiming it. The gospel doesn't merely save us. It also, this is as a community, it shapes us. The truth of the gospel are not meant to be admired, but also to be lived out. You know, I mentioned forgiveness as like, you know, as we're thinking through the components of the gospel, and forgiveness being this element by which God is considered and is, worthy of praise. It's interesting how we find forgiveness so unpraiseworthy for us to reproduce. Right? We love God's mercy. We don't like to be merciful. We love God's generosity in giving his son. Yeah, it's really hard to be generous with our own heart when people have hurt and injured us. Well, the gospel shapes us. If it is good for God and glorious for him to be merciful, it is good and Christ-like in glory for you to do what? Be merciful, forgive, and to do it in deep cost to yourself. Okay, so the gospel shapes us. I think we ought to be a little more um, robust in our commitment to live like the gospel of Jesus Christ. I feel like we lack, um, and, and I'm speaking broadly, not necessarily um, to Crossway in particular, but I think we, we love to sing the praises of God, but if we... If we are honest, we don't find it very um, imitatable because it terrifies us to be like Jesus. It's my encouragement that we live it out. And then the gospel centers us. If the gospel must be believed to save us from eternal judgment, and if the gospel is what shapes us on a day-to-day -day basis, then the gospel must be at the very heart of everything we do. And I think this is actually where we get really down to the core of why churches should be different than many of us or many of our church organizations are. The gospel should shape us. At the core of the gospel, I think you saw this in the false definitions, what was the center focus of the gospel in most of the bad definitions? Us. So it should be no surprise that when someone frames out a worship service, the center consumer of that worship service is whom? 
us. <laughs> I mean, the gospel is about us. It's about us. And so when we sing worship songs, the question isn't, is God exalted? The question is, do I like it? But that goes back to the gospel. The gospel is not about you getting what you want. The gospel is about God being glorified through you. It is that the God of glory has made you to honor him, and he calls you to be saved by him for his eternal glory, right? Isaiah, I don't do this for you. I do this for my name's sake, right? Ephesians 1, God has done all of this work of saving us to, so that it would like produce praise to his glory, right? That there would be praise given to God in such a way that he gets glory. So we come to church on Sunday morning. Who is the, who is the primary consumer we should be concerned about? God. And praising him in such a way that he is glorified. Not praising him on a way to glorify ourselves. And so it shapes the way we do ministry. That would be just one way I think, I think we should change the flavor of how we think about church is the central theme of the church has got to be its its central theme right the gospel has got to be the main thing so at crossway we are committed to keeping the main thing the main thing and i don't think we do that well when we forget to shape ministries decisions programs spending etc in such a way that the gospel is the foundation under which those questions are answered, those, those uh, ministries are being done. Right, so, so some of those, like if we're just going to talk about ministries for a moment, the reason nursery is so precious is not merely because we love babies. Yay for those who love babies. The reason the ministry of nursery is so precious is because it allows God to be glorified in such a way that, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 14, that the God of order is honored by a service that is not chaotic. I mean, we have like 25 to 35 babies on average in our church on a Sunday morning. Do you want them in here? I wouldn't mind them being in here for like 30 seconds. But I want them all out when we are trying to focus on the word of the Lord. Because even if the baby is, is quiet, here's what I know. Mom pops that baby up on her shoulder, and she's patting that baby, and she's just listening to the ministry of the word. You know what the six people behind her are doing? They are all making faces at that baby. They're all smiling. What's great is when you're preaching to a whole bunch of people making gaga-goo-goo faces at a baby, and you can see them all. And so you have, like, grown men looking like baby infants as they're making kissy faces at a baby, and you're thinking, like... Why is that baby in here? And the poor mom has no clue. She's just like, oh, this is so nice. I get to hold my baby and listen to God's word. And you're like, yeah, the people behind you aren't. That's, there's a philosophy behind nursery. It's like if the gospel is center, then, then, then what the mom feels about cuddling her baby is not center. And her distraction is actually a distraction for the very gospel. That's, that's a big deal. And that's a ministry deal. And so that's, that's where some awkward, hard conversations sometimes have to happen. So, having said all of that, uh, the gospel is also a gospel of grace. So we'll be very gracious with our moms and remind them that we have sweet and wonderful nursery workers 
who love taking care of babies. So, all right, let's pray and be done. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ by which you have rescued us from our sin and by which when we believe we are saved. God, we thank you that the hope of heaven is not merely that we're rescued from sin, but we are rescued to you. Uh, the hurt and the injury of broken relationships is nothing in this life compared to what it would be for eternity. We thank you that the gospel is not merely a gospel that uh, offers forgiveness, but the end of forgiveness is reconciliation with our Father in heaven. That we are restored as children with rights of inheritance, and we are eternally loved by our Father. These are precious gifts that no words can do justice to and our hearts can never fully express their gratitude for. In which case, Lord, we just simply say thank you. And we will say this again and again for days unending because we cannot say it enough. Thank you for saving us from our sin. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.